Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. Welcome. This is a special edition of Interpreter Radio. Terry Hutchison and Martin Tanner in studio. And with us, we have Grant Gardner by phone. I'm excited about this show. We are doing Come Follow Me from the Book of Mormon, chapters 11 through 15. And then our second hour, we'll talk in some detail about the translation, the plates, and some related things. This particular hour of the interpreter show is brought to you by the interpreter foundation the mission of which is to support the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints through scholarship interpreter foundation provides accurate information to the public about the church and makes available free to everyone scholarship on a wide variety of subjects at interpreterfoundation.org the foundation also defends the church against critics and against misunderstandings. Nevertheless, it's not owned, controlled by, or affiliated with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the material it publishes and what we say this evening is strictly our own responsibility. And this hour of the Interpreter Radio Show is also sponsored by Kimber Academy, which is a unique K-12 private school which, unlike public schools, keeps God in the classroom, as well as a high standard of academic excellence. Kimber Academy is a special place where teachers guide students towards faith and morality with quality, engaging curricula. At Kimber Academy, every parent's voice is heard. In Utah, Kimber Academy is located in Linden, Utah, there are many other locations throughout the United States. If you think your child might benefit from being a student at Kimber Academy, to find out more or schedule a tour, call the director, Jessica Bianco, at 801-382-7158. The director, again, Jessica Bianco, 801-382-7158. Or if you'd like more information Straight on the internet, go to KimberSchool.com. That's KimberSchool.com. And with that introduction, we're excited to start our Come Follow Me for the 31st, which is 1st Nephi, chapters 11 through 15, armed with righteousness and the power of God. Brant Gardner and Terry Hutchison, and all of you listening, welcome to our studios. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Martin, appreciate it. And Brant, thanks for being with us today. We are happy to have you both for this hour and the next, in which are one of the special things we're going to talk about are two recent books published by yourself. Um, and they are from Greg Coford Books, and we'll spend the second hour talking about those. But uh, I've been seeing comments, in fact, Grant Hardy posted something in social media today about it. He's looking forward to unwrapping his copies, which are under his tree. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah, nice. But uh, but I will tell you that Martin and I had Grant on the program 
What, about six weeks ago, I think, and uh, he was very complimentary of your work and was looking forward to what you were doing when we mentioned we'd be having you on an interview with us as well. So getting to our Come Follow Me Brant, uh, first Nephi 10 through 14. Uh, well, actually, it's 11 through 14, I should say. Um, that's kind of in chapter 3 of the original Book of Mormon, and you, you have formatted a new study Bible. Um, what are some of the things about this section that we can pull out of that study Bible from, I think it's called, from the Plates of Mormon? I would guess that the first thing is what you said, is that uh, in that study Bible it goes back to what the chapters were in 1830 rather than what happened uh, when Orson Pratt split them up in 1879. And the reason that that's interesting is it starts putting stories back together the way Nephi saw them rather than the way uh, they've been split up for other reasons. So in... One of the reasons, apparently, that Orson Pratt split things up is he didn't want to have more than 100 verses in any given chapter, and so he had to kind of split things to make that work. I'm not sure why he limited that. Um, the reorganized church did not when they did their own numbering. Uh, but what that means is that there are times when Nephi saw a continuation of his story, and we kind of get it interrupted. Um so I guess the first thing to take from it is that you you sort of get those original chapters back, and it's closer to the way the Nephi thought the information ought to go together. So, you know, this is this is very interesting, and it kind of brings up a point that that maybe we'll talk about a little later in the section. I, I, uh, I this is the church's first stab, if you will, since they did started come follow me about four years ago, five years ago where the, everything is condensed into one manual. And so yeah. when, I'm, when I'm looking at this, it, it leaves a broad latitude for teachers at the adult level or at the youth level to, to kind of explore some of these topics. And uh, I've always just enjoyed diving into it and then just kind of going through it verse by verse and uh, emphasizing, of course, some of the, some of the material that's in there. But... Uh, I remember in Second Witness, which uh, you wrote several years ago, a, a great resource for those who are interested. Um, at this point, from chapter 11, you had an excursus called the Nephite Understanding of God. And, and this chapter yeah. really um, opens up a, a definition of God that, I, that, that is, I mean— I see roots of it in the Bible, but it's not as explicit as Nephi gives it to us here. And um, can you just explain that for the listeners? Yes, and let's start with the fact that Nephi is more explicit. You know, we remember that when Nephi left, uh, his father had been preaching in Jerusalem, and the people in Jerusalem you know, would have nothing of it. They you know, kicked him out and wanted to kill him. That's why they had to kind of escape and ended up in the New World. But when Nephi sort of comes to the New World and he starts talking about it, he sort of talks about the experience he had. And in one case, he says, you know, I'm not going to teach people uh, the way the Jews did it. I'm going to teach them something else. And then in another case, he says, you know, 
the, the scriptures have been altered and have been changed. And we get those, and we don't know quite what to do with them, because we do we read those from our modern perspective, and from our modern perspective, we say, oh, the scriptures have been changed. You know, somebody was in there tampering. And the reality of history on that is that, yeah, some of it happened, but it, you know, didn't really fundamentally change everything upside down. The real secret to all of that is to look at what Nephi and Lehi were actually saying. You know, what did Lehi teach that got people so mad? And what he taught was that the Messiah would come, but not just a triumphant military Messiah, but the atoning Messiah. He says, this is the one that's going to come. And that was the teaching that got him kicked out of, of Jerusalem. And so when Nephi says, you know, we're missing Scripture, the only way to know what Nephi thought was missing is, what did he replace? What did he teach? And he taught what his father taught. And so what happens is, we really start to see that and, and develop it um, you know, in this vision that he has uh, of his father's dream. And the idea is that it returns to what the concept is of Israel's God, and Israel believes that their God is Jehovah, or in scholarly terms, Yahweh. And that's the the God that they have. And there are indications as we delve into the history of the development of uh, Israelite understanding of their religion and God, that at one point in time, they had a concept of the council in heaven. Their concept of the council in heaven had a sort of most high God, a God the Father, who was above all of these other gods. But there were other gods, and there were, you know, 70 of them, because that's the number of, you know, sort of infinity uh, you know, in the ancient world or at least in the ancient Israelite world. And so Jehovah is one of these, and he is the God of Israel, Jehovah or Yahweh. And so when we get to Nephi, he's saying, this is our God. This is the God that we believe in. We believe in Yahweh. What is the difference then between what they believe and what people in Israel had believed? And the difference is somewhere Israel lost the idea that there was an atoning Messiah who was going to come to earth. And they just focused on the more kingly related military Messiah that was going to come at the end and solve all of their, uh, you know, kingly problems and problems of domain. And, and so that's what Israel was stirred. Uh, Jerusalem was starting to look toward, but uh, when they get to the new world, Nephi says, no, no, that's, that's not it. We believe in Yahweh. Uh, and Yahweh is this Messiah who is going to come down. And so later on, we have Abinadi, who teaches God himself will come down. And that's the God of the Nephites. Now, that kind of sounds a little strange, because it doesn't say, well, wait a minute, you know, where's God the Father, God the Son? And that wasn't really necessarily the theology that they were working under, because in the old world, they really only looked to Yahweh, which is their God. And then their God is going to himself come down. And although that seems a little strange, we have to remember that we also believe that the pre-mortal version of 
Jesus Christ was that he was Jehovah or Yahweh. And so it fits perfectly with the way we understand things, but not necessarily in the vocabulary that we're used to seeing it. Uh, and it's, I think, really important for all of our study of the Book of Mormon to realize that when the Nephites are talking about their God, they're talking about Yahweh, and they are specifically talking about Yahweh, who will himself come down. In other words, this Yahweh, Jehovah, Jesus will himself come down on earth. Uh, and that's the real important thing that they were teaching. The framework is is a little bit different from the way we have it now. But some of the early Christians had, had a similar idea. If you go to the book of Jude in the New Testament, some of the earliest and best manuscripts say, although you once knew it, Jesus saved the people uh, out of the land of Egypt. And, and so there were at least some early Christians who believed that Jesus was Yahweh. And, and so this, this is not something that's new to Latter-day Saints. Early Christians had it. Nephites had it. Right. And, and there are traces of it in the Old Testament. But of course, the Old Testament took a different line. And um, of course, we believe that the Bible was inspired, but it came through human hands while it was being inspired. Uh, and somehow in that very human process, the, this second concept of the atoning Messiah sort of faded and gave way to the kingly Messiah. So the ancient Israel believed it, the Nephites believed it, uh, early Christians appear to have had remnants of that belief, and of course we understand that now. So not necessarily so strange when we understand that longer history. Well, and, and early on in the original manuscripts, it just said God, and then later they've amended that to say the Son of God in order to clarify exactly. and keep that understanding, to separate between Yeah, yeah I mean, you're, you're talking about in the Book of Mormon, right? Yes. Yes, yeah. And it was clarified because we had a different understanding of how the Godhead was to be understood, and so it made it easier for people to understand. But yes, in the original, when it was reflecting the Nephite version, uh, you would get Mary is the mother of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and, the title you know, page. Was that... Yeah, yeah. So for our, but, but, for our know, listeners, it, we're, we're, we're talking about 1 Nephi 11, verse 18, where in the first edition it would have said, uh, Virgin whom thou seest is the mother of, of God. God, and now yeah. it says mother of the Son of God. And then verse 21, yeah. we have another change where it says the Lamb, yea, even the Eternal Father, it's even the Son of the Eternal Father. And those are probably the two biggest changes, uh, at least... Um, text-wise, that were ever made to the Book of Mormon. So, and uh, in my opinion, it didn't change the meaning at all. <laughs> well, and, and no, for me... No, no, it really didn't. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it clarified the meaning for a modern audience. But if you return to what the Nephites meant when they said that, you know, they mean the same thing we mean when yes. we say Son yeah. of God. They just use different vocabulary and different way of understanding it. Do you have a thought about the use of um, the Spirit 
of God, as the Spirit of the Lord, rather, as it's mentioned in, in chapter 11. I've heard people argue about, oh, is this the Holy Ghost? Is this the Spirit yeah. emanating from God? Talk a little bit about that and how the terminology is a little bit different from how Latter-day Saints use that today. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about the Spirit, we actually have an identified member of the Godhead in mind. And that doesn't appear to track anciently as much as it does from the time of Christ forward. Uh, so the kind of concepts and terminology became developed and, in, in, uh, you know, the way we understand the Holy Ghost or the Spirit of God as an entity uh, is sort of a, a Christian post-Christian. Prior to that time, the Spirit was, you know, an influence. It could have been, you know, an entity. It, it was much more nebulous. And so the idea that when the Spirit comes, you know, that we the, the idea that it must have been a member of the Godhood, that's you know, an interesting modern speculation. I don't think it's required by the text. I think it just means you know, a divine entity came and uh, made the introduction. Well, you know, you have the angel of the presence, you have the presence, you have all kinds of the, the memra. I mean, even, even President Oaks spoke of the memra. I remember it was kind of recent, wasn't it? Where he, or, or at least he talked about the various names of God, and uh, you you just have all these different versions. Like in the Book of Jubilees, you have an angelic being, and uh, in at times there's Jesus speaking as if he's the Father because he's been vested with that authority. So, right, I, I, you know, we we have a lot of examples in both restored scripture as well as ancient scripture that. Uh, it's a more fluid concept than just yeah. being able to plug in the Holy Ghost like that. Well, first, first Nephi yeah. eleven eleven says, "He spake with him as a man speaketh, for he beheld that he was in the form of of a man." And and so that that has left a lot of people to uh, speculate ex about exactly who it was and and what was seen. Anyway, I've heard some fun discussions <laughs> on that. I. I, I I think just reading the text and and the meaning of it is is fine enough. This is a little I, bit. Yeah, j just last month we have the two prophets who die in Jerusalem and then are raised up after three days, and <laughs> you get all kinds. The Jews always thought it was Enoch or Elijah or maybe both. Occasionally they'd throw Moses in there. Yeah, Elder McConkie would say, <laughs> "Oh, it's modern of prophets and apostles," and boy, I'd, okay, who? Elder Bednar, Elder Soros. Yeah. I mean, yeah, come on, let's let's go. That's Speculation, right. you, full you, blown. You always had a few we, missionaries we out there in the mission yeah. field who had, you know, somebody's patriarchal blessings that they were one of the prophets or something. You know, so you never you never knew the yeah. urban legends. You know, the the manual though starts this chapter, Brant and Martin, with a, a fascinating paragraph that I've not seen before in the church manuals. When God has monumental work for his prophet to do, he often gives that prophet a monumental vision. Moses, John, Lehi, and Joseph Smith all had visions like that, visions that expanded their minds and helped them see just how grand and awe-inspiring God's work really is. I mean, we talk about the prophetic vision, and uh, right. you know, you see elements of it everywhere, whether it's Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah, Joseph Smith, and in the uh, pseudepigraphic literature or others, um, you know, the apocalyptic literature, you get all kinds of those things. 
And uh, I've never really seen the manuals emphasize that before. And and for me, that's a, a real big point to this section of our scriptures, because this is not only the prophetic vision that Nephi gets, which, of course, is following on his father. We get interpretations out of it as well. And um, the, the manual makes a really good point. Um, they, they encourage us to um, look for the symbols in the vision and the events. And what do you find that helps you understand why Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's love? And then um, to look for things in these visions that apply to us and, and what we can take from it. And, and I've never really seen that approach before. So, Martin and, and Brant, comment on the prophetic vision here and, and its purpose for us today. Well, the, the, I'll jump in really quick. Um, this the section that we're studying today starts off in chapter 11 and and this is something that is to explain to us this vision that's 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 already happened and you start to have the uh, application or or key if you will of what the vision means starting in verse let me find it here 22 where it says uh knowest thou the meaning of the tree which thou saw i guess it's verse 21 and then verse 22 he answered and says yay it's it's the love of god and it goes on a little bit farther and and in verse 25 what's the rod of iron well it's it's the word of god and you go on a, a bit more and what are the waters well they're the love of god and verse 35 a little bit farther it it has the key to the multitudes of the earth, and this is the, the great and spacious building and, and the world and the wisdom thereof. And it keeps going on through here. And, and what this is the key for, after you get through verse uh, 36, that's the spacious building and the pride of the world, is, is that this is showing readers the fact that the world's spiritually a very dangerous place to live in but it also gives the keys of of how to be safe through that keep safe to to the word of god and the love of god and if if you do those things then then here's your your key to salvation brand I think one of the really important things to remember about Nephi is that he said he likened scriptures unto us, which means that, you know, you take whatever's in the scriptures and you say, that's what the scripture says, how does that apply to what I'm doing? And where we kind of skip over the step, uh, he applied it to his own people, and then because he did, that tells us that we should do the same. And so we read the scriptures looking for those things and how we apply them. And that's absolutely important, valid way to look at them. Most of my emphasis has been trying to figure out sort of how Nephi writes things, um, you know, and how he uses those scriptures to sort of enhance uh, the message that he's giving uh, to his people. And, And there's something, if I could sort of back up to the, you know, what goes before this story, 
we all know that Lehi gets the vision of the tree of life and then it stops. And when we compare the two visions, we see Nephi getting the same vision, except he gets some explanation that his father didn't get. And then he goes into this whole thing about the Messiah coming that wasn't in the vision. And what we miss is the fact that Nephi probably saw that as well, uh, because he understood what the tree was, and it was the love of God, and he probably understood the rest. And Nephi makes sure that he talks about what his father taught after that, right after that and before Nephi gives his own experience. And his father's talking about the Messiah. So pretty clearly he knew it, and he knew how that attached. It just wasn't part of what Nephi wanted to write. And so we didn't, shouldn't think that there were two completely different visions. Uh, they were probably very close to the same thing, but Nephi didn't want to give it all away because he wanted to talk about his own experience. This is a foundational experience for him. And what we'll see in Second Nephi is that as he explains all of those chapters that he throws in from Isaiah, he uses those verses from there uh, as springboards to explain this vision. And it's sort of like he's saying, yes, I had a vision, but Isaiah understood it as well. Here's how Isaiah fit into that vision. And so Nephi basically says, look, now you've got two witnesses. Isaiah and I are both witnessing to the truth of this vision. So at this point in his writing, at this point in his life, it's important. It becomes important also at the end of his life when he's writing Second Nephi. You know, I, I always remember that Lehi also had a vision of the Messiah and the Twelve Apostles in yes. Lehi chapter 1. So yeah. the, they, I, I think the prophetic vision, and this is just my own personal view of it, I think the prophetic vision is the same. I think each prophet perceives it, of course, differently based on their culture and based on their understanding and the Spirit. Each one certainly writes a different fragment of it, but I essentially think that it is what Moses saw, what the brother of Jared saw, um, sure. that's been sealed, the vast majority of it, but it's a history of the world, and, and we, we, we get that most plainly here with Nephi, where he hands off the rest to John the Revelator. And yeah. ironically, just last month, we spent the month of December going over, you know, the book yeah, of Revelation yeah. with, uh, you know, with our Come Follow Me study there. In fact, on Interpreter, uh, with, with my other group, we interviewed uh, Breck England, who has written a book about the book of Revelation and how it ties in with the temple and how it's through the temple endowment that we can fully understand the book of Revelation much more clearly anyway. But I think it does go hand in hand with Nephi's experience here. You know, there's another... Yeah, and your, your comment that, uh, that all of the prophets would perceive it differently, that's borne out by what Nephi says. He says, you know, my father didn't see, for instance, the dirty water. He didn't concentrate on that. It wasn't part of what he was paying attention to. And so Nephi says, yeah, we saw the same vision, but we're seeing different things in it. Yeah, I, it, it might have been there, but that's not what Levi, Le, Lehi was particularly paying attention to. Yes. You know, there's another thing that I ran across um, several years ago for my radio program in St. George. I was sent a copy of, uh, there's a series from Fortress 
uh, called Emerging Scholars, and they reprint doctoral theses. There's a guy, guy named David P. Melvin who sadly has died um, at a very young age, but he was a, uh, I think he was a Methodist minister, and the title of his was called The Interpreting Angel Motif in Prophetic and Apocalyptic Literature. And his thesis is mm. that about the 6th century, beginning with the last eight chapters of Ezekiel and also the first six chapters of Zechariah, the reporting, at least, of prophetic visions changed. So before that, the prophet would see the vision and deal directly with God. But then after that, and, and there was some, there's some overlap, of course, but after that, there was a, a phenomenon that's recorded in the Scriptures, and, and these are clear examples of it, where a heavenly being or an interpreting angel comes to interpret what the prophet is seeing in that vision. And as I was reading this, I immediately thought of the differences right here between Lehi and Nephi. Because Lehi's vision is clearly a direct vision. He sees the tree and reports on what he sees. Nephi, though, has the spirit, this heavenly personage, to explain it to him and to ask him questions and then to be a sounding board about that. And then later we have King Benjamin. He says, the angel explained this vision of the Savior to me in, his, in uh, Mosiah chapter 3 where he reports on you know, mm -hmm. the life of the Savior. It's just a, a, I, I'm still trying to figure out where this fits. You know, is it, is it just something that, that occurred at that period of time? Because if it occurred in the old world, it looks like it's occurring in the new world at about the same time. Yeah, and I can't really tell you much about that, but here's one thing that I can tell you. Nephi, or Lehi is a visionary man. You know, his sons deride him as a visionary man. And everything we hear about Lehi is he gets his divine information in a vision. He is a visionary man. And most of these things come, you know, in dreams at night. And sometimes they will specifically say, you know, I, I saw the vision, you know, in daytime to indicate that this was real, you know, not a dream kind of thing. But a lot of them were, were dreams. But they're visions, and then they're things that you see, not necessarily interact with or interpret. And a lot of it would depend on how that person understood the symbology, etc. Lehi is the last visionary man in the Book of Mormon. Nephi is not a visionary man. And the visionary tradition does not come across the ocean. Yeah, I mean, Lehi does, but that tradition sort of dies out. And we don't have really any more visionary men. There is a, a Book of Mormon shift to a different type of revelation, uh, a more informative one. Uh, and, and when we get explication of Scripture, we get a, a much more direct explication of Scripture. We don't get, you know, I dreamed a dream, and here are the symbols, try to figure it out. Uh, it, it's pretty direct. Here's, here's what it means. Here's what you need to know. Uh, so there is a shift in the new world. Now, relationship to the old world, that's an interesting question. Don't have a good answer to that one. Let's uh, cover a little bit overview of, of we've talked about chapter 11, but maybe chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15. So those who are teaching and who are students can maybe uh, hit, hit some of the 
high points of, of those. Brant, Terry, any thoughts about Chapter 12 that you would like to bring up here? Well, one of the things that, that the manual encourages us to do, and once again, it's something that's a little more direct than I've seen in the past, or maybe a lot more direct. Uh, why do you think it was valuable for Nephi to know these things? Okay, I mean, we have the, the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles are going to judge Israel in you know, chapter 12. And in chapter 13, we have Columbus, we have the pilgrims, we have the Revolutionary War, the building up for the restoration. Um, yeah, this is something that, that you, you, we know, we can see from the symbolism that it's very clear, just as Brant was explaining a minute ago, it's explication. But what is the purpose for each of us? How does it benefit us to know these things? I mean, for me, it's beneficial to know that Columbus was prophesied, that the, that the whole process of American liberty and its founding in the new world was created to present a, a protective bubble, if you will, in which the church could be restored and could survive. I mean, and at times I, I, I'd be hesitant to say that it flourished. I mean, I've spent a lot of time lately going over the life of Joseph F. Smith and uh, the Reed Smoot trials and the manifesto and, you know, the anti-polygamy campaigns that the federal government engaged in in the late 19th century. And so for me, it, it's just a sign that that these things needed to be a step-by-step -step process. And as I was explaining earlier, the minute it starts to get past that and get into the last days, Nephi gets shut down. He sees John the Revelator, and it's John who's going to report the rest of these elements of the vision. But Nephi does go ahead and see them. At least that, that's what I see from it. That's what I benefit from, but I'm sure there are others. Brant, your thoughts? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, looking at it from the standpoint of Nephi as an author who's speaking to his own people, you really do have the question of, why in the world would you write this down? You know, why do you care? Uh, you know, think about someone who's looking at this and they're saying, well, these are prophecies like 2,000 years in advance. Why do I have to worry about this? Um, you know, if someone came to you and said, by the way, you know, in 2,000 years, uh, you know, Canada is going to take over the United States. Well, that's kind of interesting. Okay. And it, it has no relevance immediately. Now, for we who read the Book of Mormon, it has the relevance of fulfilled prophecy. And we say, yes, we understand that. And we understand how that history, you know, you know unfolds and allows us to see God's hand through history. So for us, we have a reason because we look back at it and we say, yes, God's hand has been in all of these things. For Nephi and his people, it was, you know, an explanation that, uh, you know, that there was this great future, but you'll notice that what he ends with, you know, these great symbols of basically the war between good and evil. And he says, you know, this is how it plays out, and it has lots of different aspects to it. But there's always God on one side and the adversary on the other side. 
and I think for his own people, what he is teaching them and the lesson that you know we learn from that is that there is going to be a triumph of good that God will win out in the end, regardless of what seems you know what things may seem like in the interim, uh, but that there really is this sort of conflict, and it goes to uh, what we will later see in uh, Lehi's uh, final sermon, where he talks about uh, the necessity of agency. Uh, you know, we, we have to have opposition in all things, and so we have God and the adversary, and it's important, but also important to know that the adversary cannot win. It's it's not going to happen, uh, whatever small triumphs might happen in between. And I think maybe that's the lesson for his people. There are going to be difficulties, but they need to trust in their God in the long term rather than look only to the short-term issue. I've always seen Lehi and Nephi here both as, as a little bit like Jeremiah. They saw some really, really difficult things short-term for, for their people, and, and ultimately in the Book of Mormon, the, the, the Nephites are essentially wiped out, but, and that looked a lot like Israel did when uh, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in, in 597, 98. It just looked really, really bleak. But the shining light at the end of that dark, dark path was that eventually, like you said, Brant, you know, truth would prevail, goodness would prevail over darkness, and so even in the face of that, there's, there's something to look forward to. So at Lehi and Nephi's times, that was the positive message for our times. It's a little bit more specific. It, it talks about uh, a prophetic calling and a sense of awe. The, the United States has actually been formed for a good and holy purpose in, in the future, and you see echoes of that in Doctrine and Covenants section 101, I, I think starting in verse 80, where it talks about the Constitution being created by wise men whom God has raised up for that very purpose, and the foreshadowing of, of that is also found here in uh, chapter 12. Yeah, and I think it's important to remember that that the original promise to Nephi was a promise of the land, uh, attached to the land. It wasn't a promise that you have, you know, this plot of land forever. It was a promise that as long as you're righteous on this land, that you'll prosper. And, uh, you know, the Nephites were kicked out of their land of inheritance and moved to another place and eventually kicked out of that and moved to another place. And uh, with all of them, the promise stayed with them. And it's the same kind of thing as the covenant that God has made with Israel. You know, the covenant stays with us regardless of where we are. And so Nephi um, spends time, and, and we see it much later, of course, when he starts talking about the Isles of the Sea, and we see it more in, you know, Second Nephi than what we understand here. But he talks about a return because he wants his people to turn back. And although Nephi knows that there is a predicted time when his people will end. I mean, this whole thing that he started, I mean, can you imagine knowing that you're going to start something and it's going to eventually die off? But he knows he's got some time and he's got people that are going to be saved in the interim. Uh, 
so he knows that they can come back. And then, of course, at the very end of the Book of Mormon, uh, Mormon himself is saying, yeah, there's still a return. This covenant is still out there. So, you know, these blessings of righteousness based, you know, or protection on the land based upon righteousness, you know, those, those follow righteousness. And I think that as the Church has understood, you know, the expanded meaning of who a Lamanite might be, uh, that a lot of it's the individual liberties that we have as a place where we live. So it starts here and certainly uh, was foretold to be part of the, the Americas, but I don't think it's listed, limited to the United States. Let's there's, take... There's another, there's another quick element I, I, I was thinking of to follow up on something that Brandt said, because these prophecies go out thousands of years. And he's talking about the covenant that runs with the land, but there's also this interest in the people and their descendants. I mean, there, there's an example here in chapter 15, verse 5, where at the end of the vision, Nephi says, It came to pass I was overcome because of my afflictions, for I considered that mine afflictions were great above all because of the destruction of my people, for I had beheld their fall. So just as Grant yeah. was ten, telling us a second ago, yeah, he started this thing with his people, and eventually, and granted it took a thousand years, it ends because of their wickedness. But, you know, there's another example of this in the Book of Mormon that we get with Samuel the Lamanite. I mean, Samuel the Lamanite gets on the wall, and he preaches to the Nephites, and he says, okay, if you guys don't repent, 400 years from now, your descendants are going to get wiped out. And they didn't care if he told them to repent, but they started trying to shoot him off the wall when he pinned it on their generational great-grandchildren. And it's like that was the Nephite way. That was their, they, they were descendants of ancestors. It was so important to them. And it's a foreign thing to us altogether. I mean, if you tell the average person in America that 400 years from now, one of your descendants is going to get wiped out because of decisions you're making today, they're going to laugh in your face. Yeah. Or they'll shoot you off the wall, one or the other, maybe both, yeah, depending yeah. on what state you're in. But um, I, I, I just keep going back to that, that this message is written. Obviously, Nephi was inspired for us. So the Columbus thing, the, the pilgrim thing, inspired in a way that, that it inspires me as I see that the Lord is keeping his covenants. And then with the land, but it's also very specific about the people themselves and their descendants. And there was a bond there that I that that is there in the Book of Mormon, but I don't think we always see it and feel it. Yeah. Well, we have about uh, three chapters here to cover in about ten minutes, thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen. So let's we and you know we could go a little long because there's so much cool stuff here. But let's let's jump to chapter. 13 and talk about the great and abominable church and and then uh, talk talk a little bit about um, the records and and the stumbling blocks and and then about the Messiah coming during the last days in our time. I inherited my grandfather's first edition of Mormon doctrine. <laughs> that's all that needs to yeah, be said about you, that one okay, okay on the great and abominable church yeah well i, I i'm not i'm not gonna touch that controversy <laughs> i saw here, something but. online where somebody was making up a, a, a kind of a fake budget for the church that they would announce from the pulpit 
and that one of the jokes they had in there was there was an annual payment of 175000 a year to the Vatican for the Reconkey <laughs> book. For the Reconkey book to make restitution. <laughs> Some kind of a settlement. That's kind of funny. That's, that's funny. Okay, so, so Brant, what, what do you make of the, um, of the motif that you find in Chapter 13 about the nations of the earth and, and Christopher Columbus, which we've talked about a little bit, but, but the great and abominable church, which we really have not yet discussed. What's the message for our listeners? Yeah, let, let me start with the great and abominable church, because, you know, we hear that, and then when we read it, we go, oh, man, you know, I'm looking at the descriptions of the scarlets and everything else, and, you know, this is this is Catholic Church, folks. And obviously that, uh, <clears throat> that message started a long time ago and got codified in McConkie's books and then altered... Uh, upon request. But if you really actually read the section here and you say, okay, let me take away my post-Protestant, uh, you know, anti-Catholicism that was pretty rampant in the early Americas, and if I remove that, what, what's actually happening here? Well, it, it very clearly says there's really only two churches. There's the Church of God and there's great and abominable church. There's the Church of the Devil and the Church of God. There's only two. Um, and, of course, we believe that any church that has truth has, you know, some part of it. And so there's lots of good churches out there. You know, what is this? And it's the same uh, cosmic universal battle between God and the adversary, and it's the battle that's going on. And it's intended to take everything and fuse it all together, stretch it out to the poles to make it you know, more obvious without considering the grays in the middle. And it's what classic symbolism does. It just stretches everything until you've got two opposite poles. And so the great and abominable church is the inverse of the church of God. That's really all it means. It's not intended to to identify any specific organization on earth, just as the church of God is much more expansive than any organization on church, the honor, although we believe we come close, of course. But, you know, it's intended to be more than that. So that's, that's what I'd say on the great and abominable church, if you really read the symbology behind it. It's just, you know, the, the black and white, the separation of the two, it's the war between God and the adversary, and then it just, it's, this is the embodiment of it during, uh, you know, this part of our lifetime. Um, any other question you wanted to ask me on that one? Well, just just a quick comment, and that's that in ch- chapter 13, verse 26, it, it talks about why it's the great and abominable church, and it's because plain and precious parts have been removed. And, and if you talk to one of our interpreter colleagues, Robert Boylan, about this. You know, he, he, he minces no words, and he might have a little different idea about this than some <laughs> of the rest of us, but, but he would point to some of the, of the creeds uh, that, that have um, been built up over time, and, and he would talk about the Catholic catechisms, and he would talk about the various creeds within the Protestant faith. Yeah, but he's faith, Irish. Which, I mean, come on. Well, but he comes... The, he comes reason from the background. I, he right, comes from the, the background. The reason I find yeah. that fascinating is because he believes that those things are the stumbling blocks which have taken away the plain meaning of some of these 
plain and precious ideas that that are there. I I, I throw that out not as official doctrine, but as... The verse that you talk about, though, also says that many covenants of the Lord they've taken away. And one of the things about the title page, in fact, the first purpose of the Book of Mormon on the title page is not to bear testimony of Jesus Christ. It is to remind Israel about the covenants of God and yeah, isn't to it restore them. That that's the first one. Yeah, I've always, I've, Brand, I've always felt that, you know, the first vision is first for a reason. God does things in a particular order. When Moroni comes, the Book of Mormon is first, but right after that is the mission of Elijah. And then later on, there were other things from that vision. So I, I, I think that that's, that is something that's always struck me about the title page. Um, another element of this, well, though... Well, to follow on with that, you know, what, what it also says, and, and for some reason we forget how this sort of links up, he says that, you know, this is for the remembering the house of Israel, and also for, sort of like, oh yeah, and the, and the other thing that we're going to do. And so it's, uh, you know, it's not only second to say that Jesus is the Christ. It's, it's sort of like, oh yeah, and also, this is another thing we're doing. Yeah. Uh, but primarily it's this first which is, I think, something that we lose. Yeah. And then when we get back to this, the great and abominable church being having a lot of different things as long as it's opposed to God, another example from the Book of Mormon itself is the term antichrist. I mean, we have Mm. three great antichrists in the Book of Mormon. We have Shiram, we have Nehor, we have Korhor. And each of them is antichrist, but they're antichrist in a different way. Shiram's Antichrist in that everybody's going to be safe, kind of a universalistic pro- problem. Actually, I think he was more of a Deuteronomist myself. But um, <laughs> then you get Nehor, and, and Nehor has his own version of it. And then you get Korhor, which is essentially whatsoever a man doth is, is okay. And your truth, truth is all relative, and it doesn't matter what you do. It's all about the management of the creature. And all three of those doctrines, even though they're very separate philosophies, and one of them even is quasi-religious, each of them is anti-Christ because it does away with the need for a Messiah. And it's the same principle for the great and abominable church in all of its variations. And, and so I think, I think it's, if, if we can understand it in those terms, it can, be, it can be all kinds of things. And whatever you want to imprint on it or put on it, if it takes you away from Jesus Christ and the true church of God, it is the great and abominable church of the devil. Right, right. And, and that's precisely it. I mean, yeah, the, the, um, the, the term antichrist gets capitalized in our tradition in our Christian tradition, because there is an Antichrist. But it's Antichrist, again, because it's against Christ, and it's that opposition. And particularly when you get with the three in the Book of Mormon, to keep them apart from the capital A, Antichrist, you know, I've always written it with a lower, and it's really more of a contra-Christ. It's against Christ, and if you'll remember that Christ is the same thing as Jehovah, and the same thing as God. It's it's this war between God and the devil, and regardless of how it is displayed, it's that dichotomy. There is God's way. There is another opposite way, and they're fighting each other. Uh, and that's where we get these militaristic themes. 
but however they show up, whatever the concepts are, if they're denying the atoning Messiah, then they are contra Christ, they are antichrist. And of course, that, uh, in essence, is what happens is because this great and abominable church represents the antithesis of God's plan. Uh, it's therefore against God. It's against Christ. It's against the Messiah. You know, Martin, if we jump ahead to the to the part about the plain and precious things being taken out of the scriptures, um, when you study, at least, you know, when you study the, the history of the the Old Testament itself or the Hebrew Bible, you find where the changes have been made, in particular around the time of the exile. You've got the argument of the Deuteronomistic history. Hopefully I've pronounced that right. But uh, it, it, it's really interesting because we even have that in our day. I just got a copy of the second volume of a Leviticus commentary by James W. Watts. It's published by Peters, part of the historical commentary on the Old Testament. I really enjoyed the first volume. I learned a, a couple of things from it. One of them is in that volume, Watts talked about the Urim and Thummim as it's found in the book of Leviticus. And he said, nobody knows what it looks like but, a guy, but Joseph Smith. He referred to Joseph Smith as being the only person who has claimed to have seen the Urim and Thummim, and he described how he used it to translate the Book of Mormon. Well, Fast forward, the second volume came out, um, and he's talking about a principle of what he calls immoral scripture. So in other words, he can't really take it out, but what he does in his translation is he lines through certain lines that he believes are no longer moral in society, like, for example, the death penalty for uh, you know committing adultery or something like that, that that's just, that goes back beyond what we would do now. So he kind of lines that out. And, it, you know, there's lots of different ways that plain and precious things are removed. And sometimes the plain and precious things are removed just by not reading them or paying attention to them. We, we know that when Christianity came forward, the Jews stopped reading certain passages in public like they would read in the synagogue because the Christians were using them for a different purpose. And so they kind of cleansed that if you will. And um, there were there were examples of that. I think Rachel Elior has done one. I, you know, I've, I've cited that in the book that we wrote last year. But um, it's all of that kind of thing that um, goes towards the plain and precious things. And I, I think I think another thing we can take from it is we take the plain and precious things out when we don't study them. And when we don't emphasize them. Anything? I think that may be the most important part. You know, the, and the, the most important realization um, is it Mark Twain who said the difference between the person who cannot read and the person who won't. You know, there there's no difference between a corrupted piece of scripture and somebody who won't actually look at the scripture to know whether it is or it isn't. That's true. Ne- neither one gets it. Neither one has the advantage of the truth. Yeah. Any further comments before we wrap up the first hour of our show, First Nephi chapters 11 through 15? I have nothing new. Perfect. All right, let's take a short break, and then we will come back and talk about uh, 
your two wonderful publications. Well, we might spill over into some of his previous ones, too. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Stay tuned. <laughs> this is the Interpreter Radio Show with Terry Hutchison and Martin Tanner in studio and Brant Gardner with us by phone. We'll be right back. <laughs> 